Welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. My guest this week is truly a legend in the sports gambling world. This man was the go-to source for odds everywhere. From bookmakers to newspapers to a young Spanky in ninth grade wanting to know what Roxy's line was on a game. He was influential to everyone in this business. Please welcome Roxy Roxborough. Roxy, thanks so much for coming on. Well, you're welcome, Spanky. I, I thought that um, I listened to what you did, some of your um, earlier previous uh, broadcasts, and I'm a little reluctant to do shows these days, but I, I thought what you're doing is important because you're creating an oral history for sports betting. And I think it's important that somebody gets all these old timers together before we kick the bucket. So at least somebody might be able to transcribe an oral history one day of sports betting. Wow, that means so much coming from you, Roxy. I really appreciate that. That was my intention. I, uh, you know, in order for us to learn going forward, we have to learn from pioneers such as yourself, um, who was laid, laid the groundwork for us, and for for guys like me that who you know, was able to provide for his family because of guys like you who created this business and made it what it is today. So thank you so much for saying that. It really means a lot to me. You're welcome. So Roxy, I always thought with how was life growing up? Well, I don't have a rags to riches story or uh, my father went to Dartmouth with a Harvard MBA class of 53. My mother was a high school valedictorian. Um, in upstate New York. So I had pretty good uh, upbringing. I had the advantages of uh, being able to travel and um, having private coaches in sports and being tutored in school. So I think that was something that I realized in life was more important than it really was. It was always a fallback position. And when you get in the gambling business, um, you know, when you start out, you're going to get broke. Um, or if you're not getting broke, uh, you're probably not risking enough to make a living. And uh, in the early days, I always knew that if this didn't work out for me, I had a fallback position. I don't think I realized how valuable that was until later on in life. And uh, so I had, I had a lot of advantages growing up. Well, that's big to, to have a fallback position. I think, you know, and it, it, that's lost a lot in this day and age. A lot of athletes are guys that are, you know, they just, they don't get their degrees and they say, you know, why not just make the money now? But I think, uh, you know, especially back then it was, it was an education, I guess, was so much more uh, valued and so much uh, highly regarded. Um, where did you wind up going to university? Um, well, I went, I actually didn't, uh, I wasn't much of a university student. I went to American University in Washington, D.C., because I thought at the time I wanted to be a political science major, which was the sort of in vogue thing at the time uh, during the Vietnamese, uh, the Vietnam uh, protests and a lot of political unrest. But I wasn't much of a student. I found myself, instead of going to class, I was sneaking out to go to Bowie Racetrack every day. And uh, <laughs> I, was, I was going to night going to the night racing at West Virginia. And I really, I dropped out. And I would say that later I, at UNLV, I went back and took classes that I thought were significant. 
to my business um, later on, like probability theory, etc. But I wasn't really much of a student at all. So while you're at university, do you, when do you first encounter gambling? Was it in your high school years or how, when do you start saying, hey, listen, I really enjoy this or I have a knack for this? Well, a lot of people in my generation, I, I don't, this is, doesn't happen these days, but their father took them to the racetrack. So when uh, we were in Vancouver, BC, and this would be about like 67 or 68, and my father uh, was a financial troubleshooter for a, a guy who owned the timber industry and he owned a lot of racehorses. And so we'd go out to see some of the big races his horses would race in and I got interested in the gambling that way. And uh, I've, it's funny, I sort of had a distorted idea of gambling to me just meant a way to make a living without doing conventional work. Of course, little did I know that it was going to be uh, 80 hour weeks, not 40 hour weeks. And there was no guarantee of getting paid off. But I had this uh, sort of uh, dreamlike idea that being a gambler was a good thing. About that time, a couple of things, oh, I would say 69, uh, 70, around then, I got a hold of uh, Ed Thorpe's book, Beat the Dealer. And it wasn't that I was a great, and that book had been out nine years already. It wasn't that I, I was a great blackjack counter. Um, you know, I was average blackjack counter. I could break even, which is no way to make a living. But um, it taught me that math made a difference. And I should be looking at sports betting more as a mathematical um, construct, not not a narrative. Not watching a game on TV and saying, hey, I think that, team looked uh, better or worse than they are. I realized that it, it was going to be more about math and more about data. And I think that that really uh, uh, changed my viewpoint early in life. And I, I stopped reading write-ups on stories and tried to figure out what, what, what could I do with the numbers that I already had. Wow, that's great. Uh, Ed Thorpe's book, I know, was... was... Uh, it was so influential to so many gamblers over the years. And um, for you to even uh, say that was just, you know, it just validified how big it really was. It really, even, even outside of blackjack, it's. Um, uh, yeah, I agree. There was another book. I think it came out around 1973 that really capped it for me to wanting to live in Las Vegas. I had been dancing in and out of, uh, Reno and Lake Tahoe and Las Vegas in the from 69 to about 73 or so and then uh, this book wasn't that mathematical at all it was Larry Merchant's the National Football Lottery and it was a book about him betting an NFL season between street bookies in New York and flying out to Las Vegas and hanging out at Churchill Downs and I had known those some of the characters that were in that book, and that sort of and that was more of a lifestyle book. So I was trying to figure out, boy, if I could marry um, uh, numbers and data to Merchant's lifestyle uh, in that book, I'd have it made. And uh, was it realistic to think that? No, but everybody needs a push. And then in um, um, 1975, I decided not to look back. I had been, I had lived in Las Vegas in 72 and 73, but then in 75, I just said, this is, I'm going to make a stand. And I just picked up everything I owned and uh, flew down on Western Airlines and um, went to work. Wow. 
So before you, the, your, the first time you're in Vegas, you wind up reading Ed Thorpe's book, 6869. Um, now you're saying, okay, man, this is great. When now, like, when, when do you say, okay, uh, are you booking at all? Are you betting? What exactly, uh, how do you apply some of that stuff before you go out to Vegas? Well, I was doing a lot of horse racing, and uh, I think in ni- 1970, I, I had a tremendous season at, at Bowie Racecourse in Maryland, and I thought it was data-driven. This just goes to show you some of the funny things in life. I thought it was data-driven. I was betting horses in six furlong races that were <clears throat> just going to win the quarter call, nothing more. And I had a tremendous season, and I made more money than I'd ever had. Now, in retrospect, I learned that the track was frozen, and that horses that went to, it was like running on cement, so whoever went to the front won. But I didn't want that to, uh, so I wasn't as smart as I thought I am. And I think you'll find, you, you know that too, a lot of times we do a lot of work, and we, and we win for the wrong reasons. But uh, it goes the other way too, a lot of times we do good work, and we never get the results. But I had taken this money and decided I was going to do different data in horse racing. Um, but I had mixed results with that. In 1972, I was at Del Mar in mid-meet in Del Mar. I went broke. Uh, so I took my car and I drove over to Las Vegas with a couple of hundred bucks and some credit cards and started betting on baseball. And um, that sort of launched my my baseball uh, career. But not in a serious way, but I started looking at baseball uh, data different. And I think the thing that really, really worked well for me, everybody has to have a, an in into life because otherwise you're just gonna struggle around, putts around. And Bill Dark down at North Las Vegas uh, book, Del Mar had put these baseball totals up on every game over and under. And I thought there was something inherently flawed with them, and there was. And that was my, my way to launch myself into actually being able to make money. I was also booking, too. And uh, in Vancouver, I was, a, I was a street bookmaker, a legal bookmaker, a few times in my life. Um, one time was in Vancouver when I was booking NFL games out of a stockbroking uh, office, a mining stockbroking office. If you've ever been involved in mining stocks, it's the ultimate gamble. Um, they're, they're penny stocks and they, they can, your scores can disappear while you're eating lunch. Um, well, I, on Friday, I had an hour to use their phones and book NFL bets. And it, be, it was sort of bonanza for me because I knew which side they were gonna play uh, as soon as they called up. And I'm moving some numbers in Las Vegas and then chopping what I wanted. Well, you know, the, Police got a hold of me once and told me to stop. I was, I'm fearless when I'm a kid. And they got a hold of me again and told me to stop. And they said, look, Roxborough, a third time, you're going downtown with us. So then that hastened my trip to Las Vegas. Wow, amazing. Um, so uh, this is so much stuff here. So you, you were booking and uh... – and booking NFL, how, how, how was booking NFL back in, in, in that time, late yeah. 60s, early 70s? Yeah, it was, well, I mean, it was, 
which just like it is now, it's, it's actually, you could actually make more money because you, you didn't pay as much on parlays. And it, it almost was, um, the business was almost 80% favorites back then. You could tack a point on, um, on any favorite you wanted to. And it was hard to get outs back then. I mean, I was the only guy for a lot of, for most, almost all the players, I was the only place they could bet. So um, I closed that. Uh, I only opened for one hour on Fridays, wrote a ton of action and, and decided what I wanted to get rid of and what I wanted to keep. What I wanted to get rid of, I just called down to Las Vegas. Of course, we're operating out of pay phones back then, you know, dropping coins in pay phones, going pay phone, pay phone to pay phone. Um, I ran a much more sophisticated street bookie operation uh, later in Las Vegas in the uh, around 77, 78 with a guy named Tom Georgeris, where we put on some of the sharpest guys in town. And that had mixed results. Um, basically, we had booked for a year and um, we did pretty good, but the, uh, the biggest problem with being a street bookie is probably any bookie, credit bookie, is collecting the money. And it's beyond, uh, it's harder work than it is booking. So uh, the following year, we decided we're not going to book any more squares. We're only booking the sharpest guys. We put on uh, Gary Austin and um, Hank the Tank and, and, and it basically, uh, John Bennett's crew and other bookmakers bet us to uh, Fifi, Daryl Hines, and we ended up with an operation where we just booked sharp guys. Well, of course, we didn't make any money. We didn't lose any money, but we had the pleasure of operating for eight months, breaking even with the possibility of going to jail. And I, I didn't think there was much upside in that. Wow, so this is great. Uh, you know, back, you know, a lot of people, I think, would, would think that in Las Vegas, there wasn't that much uh, uh, illegal bookmakers, but there was probably at that time because of the tax and, 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 and just because, you know, Vegas just it, it, it lured, there was so much illegal bookmakers out there, non-licensed bookmakers. Is that a fact? Oh, it was incredible. I would, the golden age of street bookmakers in Las Vegas is probably... Oh, 80 to 86 or 87. There were a couple, there are a lot of reasons. <clears throat> Even with, with a 2% tax, the book still couldn't book a dime line in baseball. And these street bookies all used to dime line. <laughs> um, that was one reason. The other reason, which has become quite apparent now, is that the books, um, the legal books, when it was spread at the casinos, enhanced the uh, street bookies' action, didn't steal from it because there's arbitrage opportunities and somebody's going to open the line first. And um, so there was a lot of, uh, a, a lot of competition among street, street bookies. So I, uh, you know, that, that went on for a while. And then when the tax was lowered from 2% to one quarter percent, there really wasn't much a street bookie could offer other than credit. And if, at that time, there were so many books, the only people that needed credit were people they couldn't pay. So that's, it had its way of just dying. 
So, Roxy, you find a way to beat baseball totals. You're, you're betting now. You you know, you're sort of booking. You're breaking even. It's not great. You wind up, you know, saying, listen, I could do this from the other side of the counter, and I start betting, and um, you do pretty well at it. Um, how, how long are you betting for, and when do you really say, hey, listen, uh, I want to cross over now to odds making? Yeah, so I did, I did pretty good with the betting from around 76 till around – 79 probably we had probably got four good baseball seasons out of it i'm talking with rois running around 20 percent <laughs> uh, wow. uh, there was because first of all also we could find lines that were out of town that were taken out of an old uh, uh newspaper it was old you know odds that were a day old and um, one thing I like to say now is that people want to win. I mean, they care about money too much, the players today. Now, I understand that people like yourself, you're working on small margins and, and, and uh, you're, we never considered working on something uh, that was, you know, less than 5%. If, if something was ROI 1% or 2%, the only reason we might uh, play would be to give the uh, bookmaker some play to look like we we're given some straight action or something like that. Um, and maybe we, we might bet something negative half a percent because, you know, your limits were as good as you, you were as a customer to them. But um, my view was that we put ourselves in a lot of positions where we knew we weren't going to get paid. So when you run into a bookmaker's lines are so bad, the best you can hope to do is uh, win a little off them every week before he cuts you off. Uh, but you are going to get cut off. So our, the assumption we had is we were all going to eventually, some of these places we weren't going to get paid. It's sort of like the assumption you have now when you're betting with European books. It's just how fast do they cut you off. So that was a different type of thing. Um, so it's crazy. This is exactly the, the same problems guys like me go through. Um, mm -hmm. Even though, even though we're forty years, you know, forty years difference, um, it's the exact same thing. Is instead of going right for the jugular, you have to slowly extract to try to just make sure you get paid and you don't, you know, just you know, you don't kill the right. guy off. You just slowly bleed him. Um, and and you you experience the same exact thing. So that's just you know, it's 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 despite the years difference. Um, these these habits these these uh, tactics uh, are still true and tried today. Um, so yeah, I find that yeah um, yeah it's 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 unbelievable that that, that it's always the same the, the same premise. It's it's a it's a, it's a tricky uh, spanky it, as you as you well know though it's a tricky proposition because you're not betting in a vacuum. There's other people trying to do what you're trying to do too. So there's a lot of people that some of your competition, if they find the same place you're playing, they might take the idea, no prisoners, or we'll take the money. Uh, I, I had a partner, very sharp partner, who actually believed that we'd take the money today and worry about the heat tomorrow. So his idea was to win as much as he could, as fast as he could. And if we didn't get paid, we didn't get paid. We moved on to another thing. So it's always a tough situation when you, when you have a golden spot on how much you can extract from it before before you're chased uh, or before they don't pay you and i you know that still goes on today just in a different form yeah that's um, a great that's a great point roxy it's a fine line you have to walk where you want to be able to last as long as possible but you want to make as much money as possible and, and and those two align you have to you know 
they kind of the longer you last, the more money you make. But you know, if if you could go and you could bet hard early, but then get kicked out earlier, you could just go for that big pop. It's it's a fine line you have to walk. Um, were you more of I want to make this last as long as possible, or I'm just going to go for it? Like when you said you had a partner, who wind up? Yeah. You know, which strategy wind up uh, going forth to, to leading the pack? Well, I think it depends um, what kind of place you're playing with. Um, if you're worried about a guy not paying you, you wanted to sort of bleed it out, as you said, a win a little every week. Of course, sometimes you just get lucky and the results just go so good for you, you know, yeah. you're not going to get paid, right? <laughs> yeah. But if, if you're playing with a legal place, you know that they're not going to close. They're just going to cut you off. They're going to pay you once and cut you off. So uh, I, different strategies for, for different places. Beautiful. This, the baseball total, the problem, there's a couple of issues I had in life. Baseball totals, I, you know, you can, we could make a lot of money on them, and it worked good for about three, maybe four years. But then eventually um, the lines do catch up even with the wind totals and the adjustments for uh, parks, they do catch up. And then it becomes a game, a game of um, manipulating numbers. And there's a few percent in that too, but after you're, you got, you're winning like 20%, you, it's hard to try to struggle to uh, you know, win two and three, but you can do it by manipulating numbers or moving numbers or just playing numbers only and not handicapping. Um, but you always have to scale up everything in life. I had a couple, I had a problem that I couldn't do anything else besides baseball. I was a losing player in the NFL and that's, I was playing almost all these just numbers. Couldn't handicap basketball to win. And of course, ice hockey was non-existent back then, but I, I wouldn't have cared anyway. So you get to a point where you're making X amount of dollars and yes, you have a, uh, a nice car and a nice place to live. Of course, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't burdened or I didn't have the joy of children, however you look at it, but um, I didn't have a lot of responsibilities, but eventually you think, well, maybe, you know, I really like to get a nice house and a new car every other year and uh, take better vacations. And you could scale the business up only so far. Maybe in the late 70s, you could probably drag out uh, we could probably drag out 150,000 a year. That's 75,000 each, which is, um, you know, if you go back and look what the minimum wage was back then, that that's, that's was pretty good money. Mm -hmm. Um, but how could you get to a quarter of a million a year in the 1970s money? Um, probably not. So, uh, a chance came, uh, for me to, let's say change, uh, change businesses. So I had, uh, this is 1981 and the baseball totals had played itself out more or less. I was still fooling around with them and I was having a bad year in Las Vegas and I went up to Reno for a vacation. So only a sick guy that <laughs> lives in Las Vegas would go to Reno vacation you really have to be that's the ultimate busman's holiday right yeah that's the gambler in you though that's fine <laughs> <laughs> and um for some reason i was i had about the best week i'd had in three years 
I think I went something like 18 and two uh, over a week at the club Calneva. It was most of my bets in at Harris, but there was a young um, bookmaker, Chris Andrews. I believe at that time he was the youngest bookmaker ever um, in Nevada history. I think he was I think 23 or 24. And we started talking and of course he wanted to know what was going on in Las Vegas. This is, you know, way before cell phones and it, you really didn't, ha there wasn't much of a pipeline and Las Vegas gamblers left Reno alone. They didn't think the limits were big enough and it was sort of a pain in the butt to, you'd had to trust somebody to hold your money up there and a runner, you know, would disappear on you and stuff. So they were really separate markets for people that, don't know Nevada that well. They're 450 miles apart. I mean, they're they're an eight-hour drive uh, at in the best of times if it's not snowing. So they were really separate markets. And he asked me if I would help him with totals when um, I went back to Las Vegas, and I said, "Yeah, I'll take." You know, we I, we made a deal for a few hundred. It wasn't going to hurt my business because I thought it would played out. And one thing led to another, and that was Chris Andrews, and uh, he recommended me to make lines for other places in Nevada, and it turned into a business. But I never thought it was a, a real business. I thought it was a business where I was going to end up making, say, you get uh, seven places paying you 500 a week, and uh, you know it's around 150,000. But all of a sudden now you've got business expenses, and I thought, okay, it's okay. I can probably make a business out of it, but I was still betting. So I, th I think that the turning point came when the, um, much like the movie Casino, when Robert De Niro or Lefty Rosenthal, and believe, believe me, you never called him Lefty. He was Mr. R. Um, when he, when he got, uh, was tossed by the gaming control board, more or less, and Argent was thrown out of the Stardust, they had a carekeeper, caretaker uh, operation, uh, which was the Boyd Group. And the day after Christmas, I think it was in 83, um, Scott Shetler took over and um, I was his odds maker. And then I made the decision that this is getting, this is Las Vegas now. I can't be running around giving them the odds and, um, and betting. So I quit betting and um, it ended up being a real business. Which, which, I, which, I, which I never could have thought of though, because you have to remember back then, not every hotel wanted a sports book. It wasn't as if every casino property had a sports book. They just didn't. And that, that actually went that way. It wasn't until maybe the late 80s that every sports book uh, thought they should have a property, but it ended up being a, a business. Man, it's, it's so amazing. So, you know, Chris Andrews was the guy kind of like this to give you like your first odds consulting job, you know, you know yeah. de facto odds consulting where you're just, you know, just consulting for him. And then slowly the word starts spreading around bookmakers in Reno. And then that, of course that eventually winds up getting to Vegas. Um, you know, what a, what a, what a time, you know, and, and what an opportunity, you know, I know Chris is such a great guy and, and it was that the first time you guys met, um, when you first, when you took that vacation to Reno, or did you know him prior? No, I did not know him prior. Uh, I, I know who he was, but maybe I'd see him in a book, we'd nod, something like that. But Chris, uh, well, we became lifelong friends. We're still we're still great friends, and um, 
I shouldn't be credited with having this great vision that this odds making business was going to take off and I was going to end up with a uh, 95% of the odds making uh, for books in the state or that um, uh, the business would go international. I'd be delivering odds on satellite uh, dish to England and Australia. I had no vision of this. I was just trying to see if there was a business in it. No, of course. Absolutely. And, and it's crazy because, you know, that week that you wind up doing such so well on those baseball totals, that's like probably the most important betting you've ever done in your life um, because that's what get, allowed Chris to say, hey, listen, maybe we could work something out. You wind up not doing well those few weeks. Um, who knows? Maybe it's like a butterfly effect. Your life might not be the same as it was. You might not have got that opportunity. You're right. I might be, I might be in the electrical contracting company running one of my dad's businesses. We don't, you know, we don't know. Actually, yeah. I, ne I never had it explained to me like that, Spanky. And uh, I think you're right. It's fortuitous the way it went. So amazing. It's just, I, I just love hearing that, you know, how, how just, you know, it's, it's, you wind up running good when you have to run good. And you, you like you said, you wind up running bad prior to that. So that's just, it's, it's just great. It's, you know, I'm, I'm all always say it's better to be lucky than good anytime. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, uh, it's, um, so, so now, but before we, you wind up, uh, uh, working for the Stardust and making odds for them, um, as, as you're in Vegas and now you're, you're, are, are you making odds just for Reno or, or are you making odds for some other Vegas sports books? And are you still betting before that time at the Stardust? Yes, I was betting um, because that was the only odds I was making were for books in Carson City, Lake Tahoe, and Reno. So I would have about seven customers, but I didn't have one in Las Vegas until the Stardust. Now, you're making odds in all sports, or is it just baseball? No, what I'm, I was making odds in uh, basketball and baseball, but I was reporting the other odds. So I was actually a reporting, uh, an updated reporting service for the uh, other books. I had been making odds for a while uh, for my own edification because I've always thought that you really can't be a handicapper unless um, you're making your own odds. And my mentor was uh, Herb Lembecker, Herbie Hoops. Oh yeah. Yeah, just a tremendous guy. He used to call me at uh, six o'clock every morning. Um, of course, I, I I didn't get up till around ten. So in other words, I had to do the work the night before, and uh, let him wake me up, and then we'd go over the numbers, or at least he'd tell me what uh, where I was off, and we developed a relationship that went on for for quite a while, and he was a mentor for me in odds making, and. Uh, you know that I would say he 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 was probably my main mentor and probably the most significant guy uh, in my life in uh, the sports betting business was Vic Salerno because we became partners and uh, from the from almost we became friends from almost the first day he was in uh, Las Vegas and then we later became partners. Oh yeah, Vic Salerno mentioned you and mentioned Herbie Hoops when I interviewed him and and he has nothing but great things to say about both you guys and. It's like, you know, how does Bob Martin now, you know, Bob Martin, you know, before you came along, kind of was the go-to guy for odds. And I think it was Herbie working with Bob Martin and, and did he kind of work for both of you guys or when Bob Martin wind up, you know, going away, is that when you kind of, when did you, was there a void that needed to be filled or how did that, you know, the timeline of that? 
Yeah, well, Bob had some legal problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, he, he had to disappear for a bit. You know, um, Bob had some interesting cases. Um, one of them went to the Supreme Court. He actually, if you actually read some of his cases, they're pretty interesting. One was a wiretap case where they actually drilled in to make the wiretap for an address they didn't have the warrant for. And that's how he beat one of them. Uh, but it went to the Supreme Court. <laughs> Um, look, you're always going to, um, well, I'll backtrack here. So Nevada, 1970s, you're looking for guys that, and the 1980s, people are looking for people with, uh, to work in racing sports books. Everybody had worked someplace else illegally. You couldn't, they didn't, there weren't any first generation, um, guys that, uh, worked legally in sports books. So, you know, everybody had had a, a raps someplace else or people were always doing interstate stuff because Nevada wasn't that big. So Bob had, Bob had some problems and then they had some crazy uh, odds makers uh, in the interim between me and Bob and one of them, uh, he's dead now, but there's a real character named Ray Vera. He had the ultimate uh, trifecta, I think. He made uh, the odds. That's number one. Number two, he bet into him. And number three was if he lost, he didn't pay. Oh, my God. So. <laughs> <laughs> can't, man, that's, uh, that's incredible. Uh, well, he didn't last too long. No, right. no, he didn't. Yeah. So, so, so making this decision, Roxy, to, 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 give up, to give up betting because you're doing well and you're to, to wind up becoming an odds maker, that's a pretty ballsy move, uh, you know, and I, I, it must have been, a, you know, such a fork in the road of, of, of and I, I, you know, like you said, you didn't picture this long term. So did you, did you say to yourself, let me just try this out? Or did you say, this is what I'm doing and I'm going all in? What was the men, you know, try to get back into, into your mental state. What were you thinking exactly to give up gambling? Yeah, well, I, as I had mentioned, the gambling thing was getting harder to scale up. And then after a while, it wasn't a question of scaling it. Um, the edge was gone. There's lots of edges in gambling. It just I don't know where they were. Um, you, you know, you can only do what you can do. I know people were beating NBA totals to death. I couldn't do it. Um, there was always somebody who had an edge, and my edge was disappearing and so I was ready to try this, but eventually, because of, of guys like Richard Schutz and Scotty, and um, I ended up in my one of my heroes, Warren Nelson, uh, from the club Calneva, sort of uh, tutored me, and um, I cleaned myself up, started wearing suits, which was a family tradition anyway, and tried to put a different face on the industry when I went out to pitch other sports books, why they should get our odds. So was the Stardust the first one in Las Vegas? Yes, they were. And of course, that was a great calling card because they were at the time, they were really the only one that was not only were they doing the opening line, they were really basically, they they were the hub of sports betting in Las Vegas. It previously had been Churchill Downs, uh, but once uh, the Stardust, and then it was for a short time, the Union Plaza. But once the... um, once the Stardust opened, um, Scotty uh, really uh, turned that into the hub of sports betting. With the whole lottery system and whatnot, that, that's, that's all that. So 
when you gave Scott, like you, you would have the odds when you presented the odds to Scott, what, let's just say for a college football Saturday, you know, the mm-hmm. Sunday before um, or the Saturday, you know, the Sunday morning, when, when would you mm-hmm. give him the odds and when would he hang them up? I just want to try to picture a timeline on, on how this, this worked. Yeah. So on Saturday, um, actually, then I think it was Monday. In other words, we gave him the odds on Monday morning because we didn't. Um, and then what happened is there was a radio show that they had on Saturday and Sunday. Um, that was on a 50,000 watt channel called the Stardust Line. And it went, the show went from 10 p.m. to uh, midnight. And Scotty decided, look, we need to get these odds on the show. So then they would open up the odds Sunday night at six o'clock with the lottery system. And um, so I would get, but Scotty had more than uh, me as odds makers. He had a character called uh, Jerry the Hat. And um, he had a couple of guys in the house that sort of liked to fool around with the numbers. Um, The problem is it's easy to make numbers if you get to pick and choose the games you want to, but when they show you the whole schedule and you have to make them all, it's different. Absolutely. And you're crazy if you don't, if you only have one opinion, you need um, lots of different opinions. Um, at least you need lots of different good opinions. So they would decide what the opening, what the, what they wanted to open the line was. And then they let people bet into them for what a reason was a reasonable sum, because if you don't take a large bet on the uh, opening line, people are just going to manipulate the line. They're just going to play the other way. And then, uh, wait till the rest of the books open up. So it, they took a pretty sizable be, uh, bet on the opening line. One of the things that I've never understood why people would look at the opening line and they would run a lot of their historical data on the opening line, which I always thought was preposterous because there's only one person that ever gets to bet the opening line, then it moves. I mean, it, it, might, it would be much better if you're looking for historical data or you want to judge something on how it moves is using a consensus opening line when it's available to be bet for a large amount of money at various different places. But anyway, that's a, that's an aside note, but uh, the Stardust opening line got to be the legendary line. And there was a lot of people that convinced that the opening line, they believed the bookmakers had it right. And the opening line was, you know, always the best line, which of course is nonsense, but that's the way people used to think back then. So was the Stardust only one opening at, at Sunday night, you know, and, and when, yes. when would the second guy follow? Like when would, like, you know, uh, what was the next, the next morning, the later next, that night? No, nobody, at that time, nobody really, there was, you don't get a trophy for being first, mm-hmm. you know? So um, people would like to see the line settle and most places would open Monday around noon. And um, I don't want to say people are lazy. But why would you want to, um, if you're taking off Sunday night, you know, <laughs> you're writing the book, it's a lot easier to open noon on Monday than it is being there Sunday after a hard, grueling day of football. Now, uh-huh. now the business, business is much more competitive now. Back then, it wasn't, it, it was people sort of, you know, they had a life too. 100%. So, so now how did, now let's just look at your business. Now, how do you scale your business? Let's just say I'm, I don't know, the Tropicana, I'm just picking a random place. Um, you know, why do I need, you know, your lines if I can just, you know, open Monday and just after the Stardust line was bet into and I could just send a guy and just use the Stardust line? Like, why would, where would your service provide value? What was the pitch 
what 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 did you offer um, these customers that they couldn't get elsewhere? Well, it was pretty obvious to me early on there was only going to be a few people that really wanted to pay for the opening line. Um, the the Mirage, the Stardust, uh, you're just a handful of places. Most people wanted a reporting service. And um, my our pitch was that uh, since we made the opening line, since Las Vegas Sports Consultants made the opening line, we could report it better. We could report the movements. That we had, we had a collection of... Uh, tickers in our office and we could get them injury information faster. And we also were going to be open uh, from seven in the morning until the last game at night. So when your night shift people come on and they have questions about moving a line or um, they take a large bet and they're not sure what to do with it, um, or there's an off pitcher in the late game, um, we're there to, you know, you call us first, that's how you get the price. And that, that became the pitch because um, it's, there's only a few people willing to pay the price for the opening line. It, it ended up being a, a reporting service and we said we were better than other people because uh, we had made the line. So, so, okay, so yeah, the opening line, like you said, it's, it's not, not too many people care about the opener. They just want to, but as the, as the line is, is progressing throughout the day, throughout the week, it's the information, everything's information. And you guys were right. able to provide that information whether it be injury, whether it be personnel changes, um, you know, like, uh, pitching changes, whatever it was, you guys were able to provide that faster than anybody. That, that's correct, Banky. And what happened was um, it ended up being an information business and then it ended up being a technology business mm. because it turned out that the distribution of the information became more important than the information. So exact, exact, eventually everybody will find out that um, somebody's out, but how fast you find out. Um, and then even if there's an off pitcher in the Dodger game, there's not gonna be any action, but you, you wanna know as fast as you can so you can repost the odds and take action. Mm -hmm. And that got to be all about technology. We started out, it was all phone calls into the office. And then eventually uh, I had this brainstorm to go to fax machines and um, it turned out that none of the sports books had fax machines, that the, um, the information you would send would go to the, uh, the head office or they'd go upstairs to the uh, casino executive office and then they'd do, put it in the mail for the next day, the inner office mail. So oh that didn't God. work out so good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, then we came up with uh, direct line printers, which was pretty big. That was a direct phone line and the odds would print into your um into the sports book gotcha. and then and then uh we could put updates out there that way well, let me go back to, let me, yeah I'll, let me go back to the phone calls because this is interesting yeah. uh you know you, you know how, how you know how big was your staff when you were making these phone calls and how many clients did you have at that time you know give well, or that time we would have well that was a uh dilemma um so we would have had uh, at that time we would have had I think 30 customers and we have a staff of six or seven. So let's find that. Let's say we need to scratch a game because, um, you know, the best basketball player is out. Mm -hmm. um, so somebody has to get to find out first. And somebody has to find out last. Exactly. And how did you determine yeah. that? 
Well, the further away from Las Vegas, the further you were going to be down the list. That was the easy way to do it mm -hmm. because news travels, you know, slower, right? Mm -hmm. So if you were in Carson City, you were going to be the last person to find out about it. And in fact, but you probably still would be the first person in Carson City. That wasn't an issue. The problem was what to do with the strip hotels because everybody wanted to be reassured that they were first. Well, um, the ones who gave us the most, obviously this, the Mirage and the Stardust, uh, the big were gonna be first because they were gonna repost the odds and then we could get the feedback on what the new odds should be. So they'd scratch it or then they'd move it. And then uh, basically you had to, uh, what can I say? Uh, everybody can't be in the top five. You've got six guys in the office, you know, I mean, you can't be in the top six. So there's a tier of six books and then a next six and the next six. And, um, you know, so that was a part owner of Leroy's, they were at the top. Uh, <laughs> no, obviously. And I'm, even Chris Andrews, because you're so, your friends and he's, you know, even though he was in Reno, you still, Chris Andrews would, would be, would be up there. I would assume at least. Yes, because I get good feedback because Chris hated it scratch game so a lot of people be willing to scratch the game and then hang it up in 10 or 15 minutes some never like to scratch games they just made the adjustment if they knew it was out the reason to scratch a game is if you don't know if somebody's out mm -hmm. right if it's a questionable somebody's going to yeah. play or somebody's not going to play if you know somebody's out you can always make the adjustment but we needed to get the feedback on that but that was always the dilemma now the, the online printers um alleviated that and to make sure that because uh, we used to send a lot of stuff all day long on that online printer, but they also came with a beeper or a bell on it. So the bell would ring three times when that means they really had to go over there and look at it. When the bell would ring, it means we we're scratching a, a game or there was a key injury or there were off pitchers. So that actually sort of alleviated that situation. Gotcha. Now, when you gave them the injury, did you also give them your proposed adjusted line or did they ever ask for that if you didn't give that? Well, um, most places were content to just drop it for five or 10 minutes and see where the Stardust or the Mirage settled it. Gotcha. So then, 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 then we'd, we'd say what the updated price uh, was. So, perfect. So there's guys that even if you, they were first before the Stardust Mirage, they wouldn't even know what to do with it anyway because they wouldn't even know where to hang it. Whereas the Stardust right. would just, you know, they would write the bets. They, would, they, would, they wouldn't be afraid to just hang a new number see how it was bet out and then see where it settled. Um, whereas other people wouldn't be so inclined to do so. Yes, exactly. Um, it, it all depends on how close the game is to post too. Mm -hmm. If a football quarterback is hurt on a Tuesday, there's no uh, urgency to get that game up that day. Mm -hmm. um, if his basketball game is starting in an hour, that's totally different. And of course, if a, in a baseball game, the, the adjusted uh, off pitcher price really needs to be up instantaneously if, if, it's, if it's close to post time. In fact, almost all the off pitchers came in close to post time back then, now, then too. So for you to get this information, for you to be so good at it, did you have guys that all they did was read all day? Did you have guys in newspaper agencies all across the country? You know, like, how, how did you get so good at it? Well, we had a lot of things. First of all, we had one thing was underestimated was the feedback from the books. They take a really large bet from somebody who's a sharp guy, and then they ask us to look into the game. <laughs> you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's the expensive way to find out about yes, it. Yes, yes. But, but yeah, but that works, though. Of course. 
I still have a, net, a network from my old days from illegal bookmakers that would uh, call the uh, office on a, a different line and uh, give us some feedback that way. I'd trade them, I'm, I'd trade them the odds and they, when they're sharp players were telling us people were out, you know, we'd investigate it. We did pay for three wire services in the office and had people, one guy, all he did was read them all day. Wow. And yeah, so that's the way that went. The next step in the technology was the, uh, we got a, this is before the internet. Before the internet, I had such a huge edge. It was unbelievable because we partnered with a company called Data Broadcasting Corporation and they ran stock prices, US stock prices around the world. And they did it on vertical blanking on TV, which most people can't remember now. They did it on a satellite dishes. They did it on FM signals. And the stock market, of course, is only Monday through Friday. And it's, uh, it closes at uh, 4.30 Eastern. And when do all the sporting events take place? Weekends and after 4.30 Eastern. So they had all this bandwidth they were paying for around the world and we partnered with them to use their bandwidth so I could send odds to England, Australia, Russia, wow. South Africa uh, via, via the, um, via the uh, satellite dish. And the, the edge just got really huge because then I'd, I'd made a deal with the sports books to, um, they would, we could hook up, because Vic Salerno on the, computerized bookmaking systems and we would run direct feeds in there and we'd sell them back the other books odds so in other words we'd take the top six books we take the rods and we'd sell it out to the other casinos so that was real-time changes then they didn't have to wait for updates that was real time wow and that was actually pre-don best but we had a the thing was that since we had a gaming license we couldn't deal with the rest of the people in the country um, of course, the internet came in and that leveled the playing field. Then everybody could, everybody had, uh, distribution wasn't an issue after, after the internet. It wasn't distribution issue, it was timeliness. That changed the whole business. And actually around 19, um, I sold my business a long time ago, it's hard to believe, but like in 97, but <clears throat> 1996 or something, I looked around and we had more, we had double the amount of people working in technology that we had in odds making. And I said, I, I think this, I'm not long for this. Wow. So another thing, Roxy, is, is, is you know, me as a teenager, you know, when I would see, I'd always look at the newspaper and there would be America's line, Roxy, you know, and, and you guys pretty much controlled most of that stuff. Didn't you like that? You know, how was yeah. that, the environment on getting your lines into the newspaper? Because that, that was like, you know, that, that, you know, every newspaper had, you know, most newspapers had, you know, a rundown of the game, the, these games. Um, how was that business? Well, uh, Benjamin Lee Eckstein, a New Yorker, had approached me about um, helping him. He, had, he was doing, I believe he was doing the Daily News and um, the Philadelphia Daily News. And he was interested in expanding the business. He thought we could do a partnership. And the pitch to newspapers and he, he actually got that business started at America's Line. And the pitch to the newspapers was that this was the line made by people that are making the line, not people that are copying the line. So you gotta remember everything you see in a newspaper 
had to go to press hours before, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but the one thing we had the ability to do that most people couldn't do is we could guess at lines. So in other words, we, we're giving educated guesses to lines. So basketball teams are playing back to back. I mean, their score is going to, they want to have even played the game by the time the deadline is for the newspaper's odds. So we, we were always making overnight odds anyway. That was a part of our repertoire. And we, it just fit in perfectly for the newspapers. And um, our syndicator, uh, UPI was, uh, or no, U Universal Press Syndicate, UPS, <clears throat> was very aggressive about putting our, uh, our, our line, sometimes called Roxy's line, America's line, or they could call it their own newspaper's line. And at one time we had, were in 132 newspapers. Wow, amazing. Absolutely incredible. And those newspapers were, you know, up until probably maybe 10, 10, 15 years ago, were used by several bookmakers uh, as, uh, as a go-to line. You know, I know it's hard to believe, but I even used to have some places that would still use a newspaper line probably as late as 2008, 2009. Wow. So, well, that's, that's outrageous. I mean, I, I know a story in the uh, middle 70s about the Albuquerque paper using Jimmy DeGreek's odds that were made um, in, um, by um, Herb Lambeck. And I'd come across, we had a guy in Albuquerque who was helping us bet baseball over and under. I always wanted to know the source of everything. I just wouldn't, I was curious about everything. Just because there was a line, I always wanted to know how that line get there. I mean, maybe we could find a place to get into the original line. So one of the things I was interested in is how did this guy in Albuquerque have this line? Uh, and he, sometimes he was booking overnights. And I never could figure out how he got it. And then we, we traced it to a newspaper line after a couple of weeks. And I told Herbie, just for the heck of it, make this game eight and a half instead of eight. And I want to see if, you know, on the on the Jimmy the Greek sides, I want to see if the guy has got eight and a half. And he did, you know, it was, it was more than a coincidence. And then of course we found a way to get into him, bet into him too. We were pretty, we were pretty, we were pretty resourceful back then. Um, you know, it's amazing when, um, when you need the money, let me say, I, let's, let's say this, when you're, I shouldn't, I'll change it. When you're hungry for the money, it's amazing how resourceful you can get. Absolutely makes sense. I, I you know, like I, I'm just it, it's it's for you to run an odds making business as a former better, and for mm -hmm. you to restrain from betting that must have been some extreme restraint. Um, you had you know a lot of power in your hands. Um, you know, was there ever a temptation? Did you ever fall for the temptation to say, hey, listen, I you know, you know, or or maybe let's just say guys that didn't use your service. Hey, maybe I'll teach them that they should use my service, and 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 you know, and bet them. Like, was there ever something like that cross your mind? Um, probably not, not really. After the stardust, the business started to take off, and I started making uh, much more money than I ever could have betting. I never, I never actually thought about it. It was pretty easy for me. If the business was struggling, that would have been different, mm -hmm. but. It just really took off, and all of a sudden, I was hiring accountants, lawyers, secretaries, more odds makers. Mm -hmm. I had working agreements with Ladbrokes and William Hill um, in uh, London for tennis odds. 
and the, the business just got so big so fast that it consumed my whole day. And then I thought the money that you could uh, win betting was, wasn't significant. Okay, so now late 90s, you, you say that you have more of tech guys than, than, than odds makers or anything. You, you decide now to sell the business. Um, what happens then now? You sell the business. Um, what's the next step now going into the new millennium? Yeah. Funny story on selling the business. It was, um, I wanted to sell, a, I always had my idea that I want to retire when I was uh, 40. It didn't happen. And then I changed it to 45. Maybe it's because my dad retired, he was 55. But anyway, I had this, it's, it's just a crazy thing. And I came to a guy and um, I, I told him I want to sell my business. Originally the Data Broadcast Corporation, which later became Market Watch. And he looked at the books. He said, these are the worst set of books I've ever seen. He says, uh, you might've got a gaming license, but anybody in uh, Wall Street is going to know that you're living out of the company, which I was, right? He says, you got to clean these books up. So we got another accountant and we cleaned the books up. Ironically, two years later, we came back and bought the company. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> so uh, he gave me great advice. There was no question about that. That's great. So, and then that took on a, a new life, too, because it turned out that um, Data Broadcasting Corporation listed on New York Stock Exchange, and I, I ended up being a 1.5% owner of a New York Stock Exchange uh, company. And then... Um, also around that time, uh, American Wagering went public with the first uh, North American bookmakers to go public. That was Vic Salerno's company. Um, so basically, I was uh, a wash in uh, what could I say? I wasn't I wouldn't a wash in money, but I was a, I was a wash in equity. <laughs> gotcha. And um, I uh, sold Las Vegas sports consultants. I actually had another company called Instant Odds. I, to I told you what happened about how I developed those odds with Vic Salerno that real time, we could mm -hmm. just disperse them to all the real sports books. That was, that was in business a year and a half and that sold more than Las Vegas sports consultants business that had been around 20 years. It just goes to show you what the technology, what it meant, what the people who bought it realized that the value was in uh, the information. Um, so, you know, you, you can never walk away from a business. You have to hang around for a couple of years. And a guy, uh, worked for the, uh, KKR told me what happens when you sell your business, you're going to find out you don't really want to come into work the next day, even though you, you said you'll do it for two years. And I said, no, no, I still enjoy it. And he was right. The next day after I sold, I didn't want to come into work. Um, yours. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not yours. I mean, I you look, first of all, you have invested in all your employees and the employees got bonuses and got stock and everything in the new company. And that was terrific. Um, but your heart's your heart's not in. it. And um, I have great employees. Las Vegas Sports Consultants was all about the employees because the employees are the ones that had the rapport day to day with the sports books. So I, th I think what happened is. Uh, I, re, I changed my, I think this is sort of significant. I had a three year non-compete and I think I changed it to seven years because, which they were dumbfounded by. 
because I told them that when I leave this business, I don't want to get back into it. I don't want to be like some of my friends that sold casinos and they, um, in two years, they came back in. I just said, I just want to move. I just want to move on with my life. So that was uh, 20 years my life and uh, I moved on. And right now I'm, I'm running uh, my family foundation money, my own foundation money, which, you know, it's, it's not a full-time job, that, but I'm trying to uh, live life and enjoy it. And I do like, my favorite hobby has always been getting drunk at the horse races. And That's I, still, great. I still enjoy that. That's beautiful. So, Roxy, you know, you, you it was such an illustrious career, and, and you, know, you made such an impact on the business. Fast forward to today on how you know sports books are, you know, just everywhere in the United States, and the regulated market is expanding. Um, mm -hmm. what, 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 you know, where do you see this thing? What do you think of how things have gone so far? Where do you see it going in five years, ten years? You know, I know you, you know, it, obviously your business. You saw how information and technology, that was the biggest undermining thing that, you know, was the most important thing ever. Um, you know, are, uh, are bookmakers going to, to, you know, physical, you know, bookmakers going to be needed or is everything just going to be computerized? I don't, well, excuse me, how am I going to, this is a, I got a lot of thoughts on this. Let me compose myself here. Yeah, no problem. I've been drinking some uh, Chevy's 21 here tonight, so I could get in the mood to tell some stories. I want to compose myself on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I think, I think the, I'll, I'll do the last question first. I don't think physical bookmakers are going to be needed in the future. I just don't see how, how they can be. I mean, if, if you're going to be everything for every market, if you're going to, post um, in-play or in-game derivatives on everything, it's got to be automated. There just can't be guys looking over every bet and deciding whether it's a bet or not. So I really think that the days of the bookmaker standing over the counter and says, ask him if he wants more. I mean, those, 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 they're only exist in a few places now. Most of them are in Las Vegas. That's, that's, that's not going to be around. Um, I think one of the things that I underestimated for years when we had to uh, talk to government and tell them why sports betting was a good thing, um, the pitch was it's entertainment. I think we might have underestimated how much entertainment it really is. It turns out that the overwhelming market for sports betting is probably just people, small, small bets, I mean, micro bets is entertainment. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I think if you were stuck in Nevada for a long time, you probably thought the market was a lot of people laying 11 to 10, you know, for nickels and dimes and it would really add up and it would be big. And it turns out that's probably not the business. Probably DraftKings and FanDuel have it right. Now, I don't know how they ever, there's much smarter people than me, how they ever um, cash out on that business, I'm not exactly sure. But it turns out that is what the market is. It's the market, people running around looking for bonuses, people uh, betting $5. It turns out that probably golf tournament betting is going to be, um, you know, 
is enormous and it's going to be a series of micro bets. People are going to look up after a day of golf and they'll have made $200, 200 $1 bets or, for the day. And, and they'll be willing to lose somewhere between 12 and 15%. Now, I can't work out the math on the cost of acquisition to get those betters. But I'm saying that that seems to be that the way a lot of the market is going. And the idea that professional betters were going to have a, uh, it was going to be halcyon days for professional betters because so many places were going to be legalized. Well, you can speak to that. Um, that's, it's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, it's, it's amazing to me how, and I understand your point on, on you know, it's, it's just smaller betters, or, or what the market is going after, the European model, so to speak. But it's amazing how in the 70s in Vegas, a five and 10 dime bet was like nothing. It was you know, pretty easy to get down. Whereas today, a five and $10,000 bet in, in, on most of these joints is a monster. And with inflation and, and, and you know, with, the, you know with, with things going, you would think that you know, it, it, it's reversed. It's like it, to me, I, I find that you know, incredible how it's easier to you know, get down back then than it is today um where at this point technology is just so prim uh, it's so prominent and you know everybody is able to just you know automatically move you can have an auto line mover you can you can you know with the proper technology you can write some good business have a lower hold but you could write some really really great business um and and not just from professionals but from everybody um, mm -hmm. your whales and your suckers and everybody, you know, and, and, you know, it's crazy. Like some of these places like a DraftKings or whatever, you know, they have guys like me limited to 20, 20 grocery dollars on NFL Sunday. You know, it's like crazy things like, you know, that, that it just doesn't make sense. Um, well, no, well, I, I, I agree that for people, for people like you, this, um, um, this isn't going to be the future. I mean, I mean, the, the books, legalization of books in the U U.S. isn't going to be the future. Ironically, here's a pretty interesting story. In 1977, uh, Frank Hall was running Churchill. And uh, before they opened their line, baseball line, at uh, 8 o'clock, there was a mob booker, bookmaker named Frank Mastrana, who was, spent a career in and out of jail. Um, because he said he didn't know what to do other than uh, go to jail and book. So uh, he'd open up a line to some wise guys and then Churchill would uh, take it. They didn't open until 8.30, but eight o'clock, they'd take a bet from Bill Dark uh, on baseball over and under, it's for 2000 and Bill split it with me. So that's a thousand, right? And if I think about it in today's money, that's uh, probably like ten thousand dollars, right? Mm, yeah. That's before that. That's before the line gets on the board. Yeah. And um, uh, so I'm. I'm actually. There's a, there's a different there's different you know if you take a look at what the uh, the offshore books though all have. Um, they're they're moving the lines incredibly sharp now. It's really hard to rebet an offshore uh, book unless you're betting into the most liquid lines. Um, because they'll uh, profile your bet and move it even past where you know where you where you can bet back the other side at a profit. So they're profiling lines pretty well. So I the future for uh, sports betters 
professional sports bettors, it's all going to be somebody who just builds a better scraping model um, uh, and, and is willing to take, uh, you know, a 1% or something like that. The problem with that is you have to make, it doesn't work unless you're 100% guaranteed to get paid. Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> I, uh, it, it's, it's, you know, our margins are very, very thin and, and, and it gets harder every year. It's, it's not yeah. easy. It's just, it's tough to get down. So, Roxy, in closing, you know, the, you know, the name of the podcast is called Be Better Betters. And, you know, I try to educate or I try to let, you know, our listeners and, and myself, for that matter, learn from guys like you and who've laid the, the groundwork for all of us. Um, what if, you know, if there's one bit of advice you could give to somebody that maybe wants an up and coming better, maybe that might want to be pro or maybe that might, might want to just lose less, any bit of advice you could give someone um, that's in this business that might be new or that might be, you know, listen, I've been around for a while, but how do I take myself to the next level? How do I scale up? Because as you said before, it's tough. There's a ceiling on this business. Um, you, you know, you get to a point in which you can't really go beyond that. Um, but what advice would you, would you give to someone like that? I'll split it into two. Uh, for casual betters, it's actually pretty easy to break even. Between the bonuses offered and having two or three outs, you're almost, it's, I don't want to say this, but you have to be pretty close to an idiot to not be break even or lose 1%, which is probably the best the casual betters have ever had it ever. Um, now for people who aspire, and that's great for people that want to have a good time. You know, they have a real life and on Sunday they drink some beers at the pub and watch teams. I think that's, that's the best it's ever been for those betters. Um, but for people that want to make some money, I would say the best advice I could give to people is don't be a lone wolf. There's nobody I know successful in this business that doesn't have a partner. There are, there's a lot of, there, lone wolves don't work. You need partners that bring something to the game. Maybe somebody's a coder, somebody else is the thinker. Maybe somebody actually has the balls to make a bet and your other partner doesn't, but he's, his information is good. You have to have at least one partner in this business. And I think that it stood the test of time from day one and, and until now in my career. You're better because of who you work with. Wow, amazing. I love it. I love it. It's just perfect. Uh, great advice, Roxy. Roxy, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It really means a lot. Um, like I said, you know, you're such an influential pioneer in this business. And, it, you know, for you to take the time to do this, I know you don't do many interviews. And um, I really look up to you. And I thank you for all your contributions and everything you've done in this business. Um, you're truly a legend. And hopefully one day I'd love to be able to grab a drink with you and, uh, and, um, and, you know, hear some more stories because I know you have a ton of them. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Roxy's one of a kind. Can't really say much that hasn't already been said by anybody else, but he's one of the best and such a pioneer and really, really nice guy. Very generous with his time and, and his stories and um, just a really, really solid, solid guy. Thanks so much for the time. Until next time.